So we are beginning a new series in the book of Acts. I remember maybe two years ago, I had a friend who was going through the book of Acts and it seemed like every week he, he was bothering me with his Acts questions and they were so hard. And so I tried to help a little bit, like I was giving my opinions, but deep down I knew it didn't really affect me because I wasn't preaching through Acts. It really it was his problem. So I don't know what we're doing here, but we're, we're going to go through this complicated book. There are many different issues that come up. One of them, as, as reading through Acts 1, is the way New Testament authors apply the Old Testament. There are other problems with, well, is this just describing what's happening? Or do we, what are the takeaways for us today? And so churches probably divide over some issues in the book of Acts. But the book of Acts is such an important book. Without it, the New Testament would make no sense. You would go from reading about the ministry of Jesus to hearing about this guy called Paul who is writing to communities of Christians without really knowing where those communities came out of. Um, there is an organization that loves the book of Acts so much that they're called Acts 29. If you know the book of Acts, it only has 28 chapters. And so what they're trying to show is that what the church is doing today, we're continuing what the book of Acts started. So Acts is a, a very important book. It um, teaches us about the birth of the new covenant church and it will also have many lessons for us and so i'm excited to begin this study and so today we're going to look at acts chapter one so in the first two verses luke the author connects acts to his first writing which is the gospel of luke as if this book of acts is the second volume in a two-part book series. You have the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. And then he says about his first book that he wrote to his uh, destiny or the, the recipient, Theophilus, that in his first book, he, he taught about everything Jesus began to do. And so from that, we can infer that the book of Acts is everything that Jesus continued to do through, particularly through the witness of the church. Here is a, a sentence that summarizes the book of Acts. It's, it's a heavy sentence and feel free to critique it. I would love to be able to improve it, but this is my take. Acts is about the witness to the resurrected Christ for the expansion of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, period. Uh, feel free to talk to me about that. I quite like this sentence. I think it's... it's but um, in a way, this chapter that we're going to look at is about the whole book of Acts. I could say this chapter is about that sentence as well. When the church bears witness to the resurrected Christ, we join through our proclamation in the expansion of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the theme of 
the book of Acts. First, it bookends the book. And so what we read is between the 40 days, between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, it was the theme that he wanted to teach his apostles, or his, his disciples. And then right at the end of the book, in Acts 28, there's a summary of what Apostle Paul taught while he was in Rome. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus. And so if, if an author begins and ends with a theme, he's essentially telling us this is what the book is about. The book of Acts is about the kingdom of God. If Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, if Paul spoke about the kingdom of God, and if Luke, through the book of Acts, is speaking about the kingdom of God, we must learn about the kingdom of God, and we must learn to teach about the kingdom of God. So Acts 1 assumes an understanding of the kingdom of God without really explaining some of the basics. And so what I want to do, I'm going to begin with offering a survey, biblical survey, of what the kingdom of God is, and then we'll explore how the kingdom of God relates to everything we see in Acts chapter 1. So we're going to see how the kingdom of God relates to the resurrection of Christ, how it relates to the Holy Spirit, how it relates to Israel, how it relates to witnessing, how it relates to the second coming of Christ, and even how the kingdom of God relates to the replacement of Judas. That's what we're going to do. And so I hope that... um, By the end of today, maybe it's a bit ambitious, but just remember Jesus's message. He proclaimed the gospel about the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. And so I hope that by the end of our time, we'll see, oh, now I see why the the proclaiming the kingdom is the gospel, is proclaiming the good news that the New Testament uh, proclaims. So let's begin with the overview, biblical overview of the kingdom of God. First, very simple, God is king. That's what the kingdom of God means. Many verses hint at that. Exodus 15, verse 18 is one of them. By the way, um, in my notes here, I have probably... 30 or 40 different Bible references that I'm not going to be reading. But all the notes will be on the website. I'm happy to share my notes. But just for for it to be smooth, I'm going to skip the Bible verses and just say um, what I wrote. So God is king and his reign is universal. Whether we acknowledge it or not, God is king over all areas of our lives and over all spheres. So God is king and his reign is universal. One of the ways that God reigns is through human beings. This is the very reason he made human beings in his image. It's clear God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and then he makes creatures in his image. And what's connected with that in Genesis 1 is therefore rule, have dominion over the earth. And so where the biggest hint of what it means to be made in God's image is we are rulers, kings and queens to rule over the, the creation. The kingdom of God is most clearly manifested When people acknowledge God's rule, submit to God's rule, and practice his will. That's how we see that God is reigning, through people.
people enacting his rule, submitting to his rule and seeking to do his will. That's Genesis 1. And uh, it didn't last too long. These, the king and queen in the, the, the temple garden um, did not submit to that authority. But God's plan to rule through human beings continues. God makes a covenant with Israel so that he would rule through Israel. In Exodus 19.6, Israel is called a kingdom of priests. They were to show the world what it was like to live in relationship with the sovereign God. Then God gave Israel kings who served as representatives to Israel of the divine king. Israel doesn't last either um, with the, the kingdom separates and then we have uh, the northern kingdom that is taken by the Assyrians and then the southern kingdom Babylon takes over all of those both of those kingdoms but the notion of the kingdom even after the fall of the nation of Israel continues the prophets expect a day in which God would reveal his reign in its fullness God was going to bring Israel back from exile, he was going to restore the 12 tribes of Israel. He was going to restore the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And he was going to pour out his Holy Spirit on Israel. Once Israel was restored, they would bear witness to the whole world about God's salvation. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Isaiah 11 and other Texts connect this fullness of the kingdom with an individual, an individual from the line of David who would reign over the entire world. He would make God's rule over the world uncontested. In God's heavenly throne room, his holiness and glory are so overwhelming that all creatures in that throne room honor him with unqualified and voluntary service. One day, the manifestation of God's glory will be such on earth that what is true in the heavenly throne room will be true on earth as well. God will judge the wicked and bring and bring the redeemed humanity into a new creation. And in this new creation, only God's kingdom will stand and voluntary obedience to him will extend to the ends of the earth as it now does in heaven. Okay, that's summary of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. When we get to the Gospels, in the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus, they're announcing the kingdom of God. Jesus proclaimed its nearness. He announced its presence in his ministry. He also announced its coming with power following his death and resurrection. Jesus came to fulfill God's promises, particularly his promises about the kingdom. In Jesus's teaching and works, the prophet's vision about the kingdom of God becomes a reality. It was offered, the kingdom of God was offered to be received in the inner being. To receive the kingdom, when Jesus was ministering, was to submit oneself 
to God's reign, to enjoy its benefits. Well, the first sin led to shame, violence, sickness, and death. Jesus brings in new creation. Along with the announcement of the kingdom, Jesus healed. Jesus cast out demons. He announced the forgiveness of sins. What Jesus did in his ministry is he proclaimed God's reign over all areas affected by sin. Now, Acts 1 completes our picture about the kingdom of God. And so first point we're going to see in Acts 1 verse 3 and 22 is the connection between the kingdom of God and the resurrection of Jesus. An important aspect about the kingdom of God is its resurrected king. Acts 1.3, we read that Jesus spent the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. We already saw that he taught about the kingdom of God, but he, one of the other things he did, he, was, trying to, he con, was convincing his followers about the resurrection. We read that he did that with many proofs, as if believing in the resurrection is a big deal. The resurrection is central to the book of Acts. In a way, to become a Christian, you must believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We see the centrality of the resurrection in the book of Acts. Uh, still in Acts 1, verse 22, when they're finding Judas's replacement, they want someone who is convinced about the resurrection so that he would be a witness to that resurrection. Also, another way we see the importance of the resurrection in the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts and try to highlight every time there is a sermon, you'll find highlights on almost every page in your Bibles. One of the key themes of these sermons is the resurrection of Jesus. So the resurrection is a big deal and it is connected with the kingdom of God. First, the resurrection shows the power of the kingdom of God. Uh, we read in Mark 9, verse 1, in Jesus' ministry, that he announced the, the, the kingdom of God coming with power. And then he refers to his, to his death and resurrection. We can see the resurrection as a form of enthronement. Repeatedly in his ministry, Jesus refers to an image from Daniel uh, chapter 7, 13 and 14, about the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus continually never calls himself the Messiah. He keeps calling himself the Son of Man, the Son of Man, and refers to the coming of the Son of Man. In Daniel, it's a picture of an individual who goes to the Ancient of Days and receives authority over all things. Following his resurrection, Jesus announces that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. The resurrection shows that there is no limit to the power of the kingdom of God. If you think about it, death is the ultimate weapon of any tyrant. Christ's resurrection shows that God's reign and authority is superior to death. The tyrant's power is gone. No kingdom can stand against the kingdom of God. He has conquered death. The resurrection is also um, shows how the kingdom of God is connected with new creation. 
Resurrection inaugurates new creation. Um, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. This means that creation must undergo a significant change for the kingdom of God. With the kingdom of God, Christ inaugurates that new creation. In the New Testament, both Christ and Christians uh, are called to be part of this new creation. First, Jesus is the first fruit from the dead. Um, he has a glorified body. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. But now about Christians. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, that all who are born again are new creation. And we are part of the kingdom of God. The resurrection also connects the kingdom of God with the forgiveness of sins. Following his resurrection, Jesus taught, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. So how is the resurrection connected with the forgiveness of sins. We know from Romans 6.23 that the wage of sin is death. Because Christ conquered death, he does away with the wage of sin. And so part of the nature of this kingdom is Christ rules through and it expands through the forgiveness of sins that is extended to sinners. A little bit of application. So for us today, um, how does the resurrection of Christ and the kingdom of God apply um, to us? Well, first, we are born again. If you believe in Jesus, you are a new creation. In a way, you have been raised from the old self. And we're still expected, expecting, again, a resurrection from the grave with Jesus' second coming. But there has been a change in every Christian, formerly rebellious. Now, to, ideally, we, we delight in submitting to Christ and his gracious reign. Formerly dead in sin, now we've experienced resurrection to enjoy a supernatural existence. What does this mean? We enjoy the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. There's that verse in Romans 8 that God's Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God. I, I can't explain it in tangible uh, ways. It's a subjective experience that Christians have. We've experienced the power of salvation um, of the gospel. We, our desires to worship, and remember everyone worships something, is satisfied in Christ. The gospel clears our guilty consciences. And we've, if you're in church long enough, you will start to see lives being changed in radical ways. I, I just remember when I told someone that I had become a Christian, he said, you never. And, and so if you're in church long enough, you're going to start to see transformation where our only explanation is, 
God exists and God has done this. You can find many testimonies on the internet of gang members, drug addicts, rock stars, people on death row, but also the self-righteous or rebels turning to God and we see a radical transformation in their lives. This is how we witness the resurrection today. And yes, we still live in a broken world. We're still tainted by sin. We still struggle with sin. But God has changed us and continues to change us. Second point from Acts 1 in verses 4 and 5 and in verse 8, the relationship between the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit power and the witness to the ends of the earth. So in Acts 1, verses 4 and 6, Jesus speaks of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, he adds to that saying that the disciples would receive power to be his witnesses. It's actually a parallel story to this in the Old Testament. If you remember that Elijah was taken up and then his disciple receives a double portion of his spirit in order to continue his works. It seems like this is what we have in Acts now with Jesus. Jesus is taken up and his disciples receive his spirit in order to continue his work. The Holy Spirit lives in his disciples. He empowers them to bear witness. And he is also the power by which the disciples do all those mighty deeds in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is the power by which the preaching of the gospel is effective. It is also the power by, he is the power by which dead sinners hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and become born again. Today, um, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that the church continues the work of Christ by witnessing to him. It's by the Holy Spirit that we can call ourselves part of the Acts 29 movement without being part of that organization. God establishes his rule through the proclamation of his reign. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. We have all received power from on high to witness to the reign of the resurrected Christ. Now we are to do God's work, God's way, by God's power, by relying on the Holy Spirit. I think when I hear about that, rely on the Holy Spirit, it sounds a bit like a religious phrase that I don't really know what to do with. And so I'm going to give you a few hints um, what it means to rely on the Holy Spirit. First, prayer. Lack of prayer reveals self-reliance. Prayer is reliance on God. We also rely on God when we preach and proclaim his truth and not our own. We proclaim the truth that God the Holy Spirit inspired in the scriptures that we have. And in practical, uh, practical terms, we need to reject some of the truths that are part of our, what would you call it? The, the rivers, the culture of the, 
we have to reject some of the truths that our culture uh, celebrates, including individualism that often the church has accepted, consumerism, as well as uh, new views on gender, marriage, new views on success and beauty that are not biblical. Doing this, saying no to the culture or or whatever the, the spirit of this age is teaching us and remaining faithful to what the Bible teaches is relying on the spirit. So every time we choose to obey God over following our own wisdom, that is trusting God and relying on the spirit. So we need to rely on the spirit to refrain from gossiping when everyone else when it may be the in thing to do at that time. We need to rely on the spirit to defend the oppressed or to flee from sexual immorality. Even when we fail, relying on the spirit means we believe that God does indeed forgive. God reigns in our lives when we rely on his kindness to change us. We rely on the spirit when we... we, believe the gospel and and we we live in light of that reality rather than the story shame tries to teach us the story of shame is the story in which the devil keeps trying to accuse us and remind us that we're unworthy of God's love relying on the spirit is believing the gospel rather than any other story about our lives God's voice of forgiveness is louder than all other voices that whisper in our ears. Third point on uh, how the kingdom of God relates to what we're seeing in, in Acts 1 relates to Israel. Depending on what crowd, this could be a very hot topic, but I think we're safe. I'm just going to state my truth and not get into any of the debates, but if you are well-versed, you may see why what I'm saying could be considered controversial. We'll deal with you later. So, in accordance with Old Testament promises, and in accordance with Acts as well, the kingdom of God relates to Israel, it relates to the 12 tribes, it relates to the divided kingdom, and it relates to the promised land. Jesus announced the giving of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 1, 6, the disciples want to know about the restoration of Israel. No, they're not crazy. Those two elements, the Holy Spirit and the restoration of Israel, are connected. Acts 1 and beyond shows Israel is restored. In the Old Testament, God ruled through Israel and through Israel's king, Following the fall of Israel, God reaffirmed that he would reign through Israel, through a messianic king whose reign would know no limit. In Acts 1-7, Jesus says that it's not for them to know the time of the restoration of Israel. Jesus had just told them not to go anywhere, remain in in Jerusalem to receive the Spirit. And again, he's insisting that they wait. They will not know the timing. In the Old Testament, the restoration of Israel meant the giving of the Holy Spirit, the restoration of the northern and southern kingdoms under a Davidic king, 
It meant the restoration of the 12 tribes. And it also meant Israel proclaiming the good news of God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus announces the giving of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, he commissions his followers to bear witness to him in Judea, Samaria, northern and southern kingdoms. Jesus chose 12 disciples in parallel with the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that longest part of Acts 1, verses 14 through 26, the replacement of Judas with Matthias was a symbolic restoration of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he sends his disciples to announce God's salvation to the ends of the earth. This means Israel has been restored in order to fulfill their mission, according to Isaiah 49, verse 6, that was read. And that is what we're going to see in the book of Acts, is Israel is fulfilling her mission to proclaim God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And so for us today, we can affirm that God has been faithful to his promises. He has been faithful to Israel. All of us who are Gentiles can satisfy, can, can testify the remnant of Israel, the first century church was commissioned to proclaim God's salvation to the ends of the earth. As Gentiles, we are those from the ends of the earth who believe and enjoy that salvation that Israel has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Now, restored Israel, the Israel of God, is made up of all Jews and Gentiles who place their faith in Christ and bear witness to the resurrection to the ends of the earth. Next, uh, how the kingdom of God relates to the ascension and return of Jesus. In Acts 1.9, we have a description of the ascension of Jesus. And in Acts 1.11 is the promise that he will return. Christ was enthroned at his resurrection. Now he has all authority, yet there is more to come. The, full, the fullest manifestation of God's kingdom will be marked by his evident rule over all people, over the whole earth. When the apostles proclaimed the good news later in the book of Acts, they did not stop with the resurrection and ascension of Christ. They also spoke of the consummation of all things. I'm going to give you two examples from the book of Acts. In Acts 10.42, Peter told the household of Cornelius that Christ is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. Um, Paul at the Arapic To the Arapagites, I should have practiced saying that word. In Acts 17, 31, Paul says that God has set a day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has provided a pledge to all by raising him from the dead. And so the kingdom of God will see its fullest manifestation at the return of Christ when he comes to judge the world. At this point, every knee will bow, 
every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. God's will will truly be done on earth as it is in heaven. So for us, judgment, believe it or not, should bring us a sense of relief. We know that with judgment, all wrongs will be made right. We know that all wickedness, all trauma, depression, violence, and oppression will end. Because God will judge the world, we do not have to let injustices we have experienced determine neither our present nor our future. Because we know that there will be justice one day. We are able to let go and let God that was an expression that I heard somewhere. But, but we don't have to enact vengeance ourselves. We know God is sovereign and he will take care of establishing justice on earth. Judgment gives us relief, but it also gives us a sense of urgency. We want others to experience the forgiveness that we have enjoyed. We want all to turn from their wickedness, that they too would not have to face the consequences of their sins forever with the wrath of God. We are a blessed people called to bless. We bear witness to the resurrection of Christ, his kingdom, the forgiveness of sins, and the new creation with our words, but also by the way that we live our lives. That was a lot of information. I'm sorry. The whole book of Acts is just unpacking these truths. So you're done. You can go on vacation. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but anyway, it, it's a lot of information. But the kingdom of God really is a big deal. I think when we think about what does the kingdom of God, what, how is the gospel about the kingdom of God, when we say, well, the gospel is about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, how do those two connect when Jesus was proclaiming the, the gospel in his ministry? And I think all of those pieces fit together in Acts chapter 1. So uh, to conclude, um, Acts 1 teaches us that the work of the church is what Christ continues to do to this day. Christ is continuing to work. We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to proclaim the gospel. As Gentiles, I don't know, most of us I'm assuming are Gentile believers. Um, We are those from the ends of the earth uh, who have benefited from the expansion of God's kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. And now we have brought we have been brought into Israel's mission. Now we bear witness to the resurrected Christ. We have witnessed something supernatural when we are born again. God has changed us, and now it is impossible to remain silent. We remember also that Jesus is king, so we submit to his reign, but he is also judge. And so let us continually humble ourselves, submit to his reign, and proclaim him until he comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for that you are king and that we are not. We thank you for um, your power that is revealed to us in all creation and specifically as well in the scriptures, how we see that Christ 
is sovereign over all areas, over sickness, over uh, spiritual warfare, over nature, and even over um, our own lives and our struggle with sin. And so, Father, we pray that uh, you would help us to live out in light of that reality that uh, you are king and you reign, whether we acknowledge it or not, that by your spirit, you would be teaching us new ways in which we can submit to this reign. And Father, I pray that uh, you would use this church in a mighty way as we rely on you, as we rely on the Holy Spirit to see your kingdom advance as we try to stay uh, faithful to proclaiming um, the reign of the resurrected king. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.